It is a pleasure to be with you on this wonderful morning, uh, the one celebration that unites the world. Um, today on Easter Sunday, we celebrate, remember the anniversary of the resurrection of Jesus Christ after his crucifixion and at three days prior. And I have less time this morning than what we spent eating to try and lift up one of the greatest truths of all time. Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Son, King, Priest, and Savior, after giving His life and taking our deserved fate, was raised from the dead to reign forever and never to die again. So let's begin with an illustration. Consider with me for a moment that you were ill and needed some medication to become well. And let's put two different scenarios in front of us. The first, I go to the store, I pay for the medication, I bring it to you, you take it, and you're made well. Most of you would probably be thankful or express some gratitude and then just move on with your life. The second scenario is that this medication is not available in the store, but instead has to be made. And the key ingredients for the medication is at the bottom of the sea, only reachable by deep sea diving. Now, for those of you that know me, this is not my shining moment. Deep sea diving is not on my bucket list. Um, but I place my paralyzing fears aside, risk life and limb, destroy my eardrums, nearly drowned, and collect the necessary ingredients. The medication is made, it's administered, and you're made well. Now, I would assume that most of, your, most of you, your gratitude would probably be a little greater in the second scenario than the first, rather than I just go and, and purchase the medication. So what we see here is that the more it costs to give, the more of ourselves are put in the gift, the greater the demand of gratitude and thankfulness. And how much more with God's great gift. So that when we read the following verse, Romans 8, 31 and 30 to 33, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And what's remarkable about this little passage is that in it, there is an impossible thing to imagine. That God's cost in redeeming us, hell-bound haters of God, cost him everything. It costs him his perfect and infinitely worthy son. And the fact that he didn't spare him. He didn't spare him, the only innocent one, worthy of being spared. That's impossible to even begin to understand. And yet it doesn't stop there. Because what does Paul say in this verse? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He gives us his son and then he gives you everything else. So what we'll be looking at this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we've sung about, what we've read about, what we've prayed about, was not simply to justify an innocent man. 
God didn't look down and be like, whoa, this guy's being punished and he didn't do anything wrong. We got to undo this, right? God was not just undoing a mistake. The truth is far more glorious. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is in fact God's greatest gift to all creation. And our text for this morning unfolds for, some, unfolds for us some of the reasons why this is indeed the case. And our verse is going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-11. through 11. And if you're using the Pew Bible, it is page 142 in the New Testament. So 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 11. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, that is our bodies, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for, prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. The Apostle Paul, who serves the church as a witness to the risen Christ, wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. And he's reminding them in this letter the same truths that we shall remind ourselves as we read it this morning. The first being the divine desire for life. The design desire for life. Verses 1 through 4. For we know that if this tent, this body of ours, that is our earthly home is destroyed, if we die, we have a building, we have a tent, we have a body from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Something I think we overlook sometimes is that Jesus, when he was raised, was a man. He was a man. He, he wasn't some mystical figure. He wasn't some animal or griffin or spirit animal or, or spirit or a giant or anything else than what he was. He was a man, a glorified man. And what does that mean? Who cares? It means that Jesus is the perfect example of what human beings should be. 
He didn't evolve or grow into something else. He remained. He was just glorified. He never sinned. He never had even a fraction of a second of a bad attitude or a sinful thought, which we have every day of our lives. And even better than that, Jesus' resurrection is glorious body that came out of the grave, which can never be corrupted by sin, is able to perfectly worship God, is an example of what we, those who believe, will receive from him. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has, has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam, the first man, all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Now, the first fruits that he's talking about here was an offering given to God from the very first produce of one's crop. So if you were a farmer, your very first produce was to be offered up as an offering to God. And it was a sign of trust that giving this offering at a time when in reality not much was ready to be harvested. It was the very first. You have nothing. You're giving everything right away. <clears throat> it would be the hope that God would provide the full harvest that was to come. And Jesus was God's sign to all the people, to all his people, that Jesus was accepted because of his sinless life, his sacrificial death. He was the first to receive the reward of being accepted by God. He was the first fruits, a glorified body, one that would never die, never decay, never get sick, never be capable of harm. And upon his return, the full harvest will come. And all his people, those who trust in Christ, those who are asleep, and those who are living will be given a tent, a body from God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Reflected in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. So God's desire for the life of man is so much higher than any of us could want for ourselves. The resurrection of Jesus Christ shows us all God's profound desire for our lives is to experience the majestic, to experience the majestic. Romans 5, 1, uh, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows us his love for us that while we were sinners, while we hated him, while we scorned him, while we rebelled against him, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God, the righteous punishment. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we're reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And more than that, we shall also rejoice in God through the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
When in your life, and, and seriously think about this, when in your, in your life have you ever said something to the effect of, you know, I feel so alive, or I've never felt so alive, or what a rush, or, or something that just, it, it requires you to just say, man, this is just awesome, this is great, this is wonderful, this is just so alive. When were those moments? Were they maybe on a hilltop or a mountain or you're flying through the sky or being launched into the air in a roller coaster or witnessing a tremendous display of athleticism or art or music or engineering? It, I, it's never when you're standing in front of a mirror and liking what you saw. Never. Never. Nobody has ever looked in front of the mirror and say, I feel so alive. I feel so great. It's when we're doing something amazing or witnessing something amazing. Our greatest experiences in life, and even in our fallen state, our greatest experiences in life are those that are big and grand and displays of splendor and grandeur and beauty. It's not when the focus is on us. And what that speaks to is that we are designed to witness the majestic. We are not to become the majestic one. Christ dies for the ungodly, haters of God. He justifies us with his blood. He sheds blood so we don't have to. He takes the wrath of God, the punishment and anger of God for sin, so we don't have to. He dies so that we could be reconciled and placed back in favor with God. But more than any of that, he does so through Christ, so that we may rejoice and enjoy the majesty of God. Come back to our purpose. We are given these bodies, this tent made in the heavens, to enable us. It's an enabling to experience and enjoy Him, the grandeur and the glory of God Himself. And if that isn't enough, why does God give us this world? I mean, have you ever really thought about that? A universe that we can't even fathom the end of it. Oceans that are so large, colors vibrant, land diverse, mountains huge, creatures that are so unique. They're there to point us back to the majesty of the one who created them. Why is murder wrong, racism wrong, fornication wrong, abortion wrong, slander wrong, all these things wrong, 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 wrong? It's because how dare us take something that God made to be beautiful and a pointer, a, a, a focus on him and dishonor it and make it something that points to ourselves. A body like the one Jesus currently has and that we will someday receive that doesn't decay, get sick, die or be harmed, is to bring us to a higher level of life and experience so we can truly see, savor, and know the fullness of God. Because if we did it now, it would kill us. It would utterly destroy us. You ever been overwhelmed by something? Something simple? Imagine being overwhelmed by absolute perfection. Exodus 33, 18 through 20. And this is Moses speaking to God. Moses, um, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, this is God, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. 
God's gift of a new body is not for the body. It is so that we can see Jesus and enjoy him for whom we were made. In the resurrection of Jesus, God also shows us, one was the profound desire, but it's also for the profound desire for our lives to be redeemed of purpose, to be redeemed of purpose. Verse 2 again, For in this tent we groan, we longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, while we're still alive, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. What's so revealing about these couple of sentences is that Paul does not speak of our desires to be stripped of this body. He's not saying we got to get rid of this thing and just start over. What he's saying is that we should, we, we long, we desire deeply to be further consumed by life. More life. We just don't have enough of it. We need more life, which our glorified body will enable us to experience. We don't become someone else. Jesus didn't come out as some animal or some, something else. He, became, he came out the same way he came in, just more. He had more life than when he, what he went in there with. So we don't become someone else. We don't lose ourselves in God. On the contrary, we find our truest selves in him. Paul shows us that our deepest longings are to be consumed, utterly consumed, every aspect of ourselves, by life. And how wise is our Lord that when he responds to Martha, um, of, of of Lazarus, right, concerning the death of her brother Lazarus, in John eleven twenty one through 27, this is what it said. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know, I know. He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He's not just the resurrection The resurrection is so that you have life. The resurrection is so you have me. If you just get resurrected and don't have me, what was the point? So you can do it all over again? I'm the resurrection and the life. And this is continuing. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Life is found and truly experienced in Jesus Christ. Everyone who, and and think about this for a moment, everyone we ever meet brings out an aspect of who we are, right? So those who are really close to us bring out or animate a certain aspect of who we are. Our, Our family, our friends, our spouses, they bring out a humor in us, they bring out a seriousness in us, they bring out something of us that in in reaction, in fellowship, in interacting with this person, it brings to life, it brings out, it manifests something of ourselves. And those who are close to us bring out a lot of ourselves. We're with them in a lot of different scenarios. And even those who are part of our lives in a lesser way still bring out a part of us, our co-workers, our employers, our neighbors, our mutual friendships, our community. They bring out humor, love, anger, frustration, worry, compassion, civility, etc., 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 etc. It brings out parts of who we are. 
yet none of them, none of them bring out all of who we are. When you interact with this person in your life and put that person in your mind, does, is all of who you are come out when you're interacting with that person? No, maybe a lot of it, maybe a good portion of it, maybe a big part of it, but not all of it. <clears throat> only Christ is big enough to bring out the entire person. It is only in our relationship with him do our truest selves come forth. Our identities, who we truly are, he touches every aspect of our being. And in relation to him and interacting with him and our fellowship with him and our relationship with him, more of ourselves are found. And he knows us, he already knows, but we start to see more of ourselves come out. It is in Jesus, with the relationship with the risen king, that we truly begin to understand who we are. He is the definition. He is the standard. He looks nowhere to know what man should be. We look to him to know what man should be. It was C.S. Lewis who reflected on this and said this, If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only arouse it to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for the earthly blessings, but on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else for which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life and press on to that country and to help others to do the same. That is why we are here, to press on to that country, to make it the main object of our lives. Jesus Christ is the one whom all of our pleasures are satisfied to an infinite degree. God's gift of Jesus' resurrection speaks to the high bar to which God designed our lives to be and to experience and fellowship with him forever. The resurrection is the greatest gift because not only that, but it also displays the divine activity of God. The divine activity of God. Verse 5 from our passage. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. Who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. <clears throat> There's a quote from a Scottish skeptic philosopher, David Hume. Where he reflects on what men create, whether good or evil. And ultimately... All of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, it's all just a feeble and failed attempt to create something joyful. This is what he writes. We're a stranger to drop on a sudden, drop on a sudden into this world. I would show him as a specimen of its ills, a hospital full of diseases, a prison crowded with malefactors and debtors, a field of battle strewed with carcasses, a fleet floundering in the ocean, a nation languishing under tyranny, famine, or pestilence. Turn to the gay side of life to him and give him a notion of its pleasures. Whether should I conduct him to a ball, to an opera, to a court? He might justly think that I was showing, only showing him a diversity of distress 
and sorrow. Left to ourselves, we make quite a mess of things. We aren't perfect. Therefore, what we create isn't pure or perfect. But what God does is, and He can restore. Therefore, His activity is so precious. The gift of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that it is the means through which God works in creation. I'll repeat that. The gift of the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings is that it is the means, it is the vessel, it is the way through which God actively works in creation. Everything is done through Christ, for Christ, because of Christ. If Christ wasn't the core of the story of creation, we would be punished immediately for our wrongs and sins because there would be no Redeemer. God chose us in Christ. He adopts us through Christ. He blesses us in Christ. He redeems us in Christ. He forgives our sins in Christ. He lavishes us with wisdom and insight in the mystery of his will in Christ. We have gained an inheritance in Christ. Therefore, when Paul says God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, he's referring to the gift of the indwelling Spirit of God, the indwelling Spirit of God. Jesus, before he was crucified, spoke to his disciples, and he told them that it's going to be good that he goes away for a while, that he leaves them physically for a season. And that's recorded in John 16, verses 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I had watched a debate a while back um, and it was a, a theist and a, and a naturalist debating morality. And the one gentleman said that there's no true morals. Um, we, it's just what we want them to be. Right? And the other gentleman, who was the theist, made the argument that morals come from God. And what is good and beautiful is not made up, but it's a reflection of the person of God himself. And he presented this following question to support his argument. He said, <clears throat> suppose you are walking down a dark alley one evening. And further down the alley, five brawly young men came out of the door and started making their way towards you. Now here's the question. Would it make any difference at all if you, you realized or you found out or you knew that these men had just come out of a Bible study? And the debate, you know, there was a chuckle here and there because of course it would make a difference. God's effect on humanity is not one of evil, but one of conviction. Christ's message is not of violence, but of truth. And people's problem with that is not that it's wrong, but the fear of it being right. He looks into every human heart and he says, that's wrong. What's there is wrong. And he provides the law to show how deeply guilty we are. We're a lot worse than we realize. We are a lot more sinful than we realize. We are a lot more rebellious than we realize. 
and how much we need a Savior. And then he becomes that Savior. He enters the world, and not only does he enable those who submit to him to be indwelled by his Spirit so that their wants become his wants and his, their hungers become his hungers. He gives them the Spirit of God so that the people of this world may see people convicted and humbled by their Creator. Matthew 5, 4-16, through 16, again, this is Jesus speaking. Speaking to his, his disciples, his people, his followers. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put, a, put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father that is in heaven. But God only give the gift of, of activity in his dwelling spirit, right? Of giving us the Holy Spirit but also in the preparation of the Spirit, the per- preparation by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit does way more than I can discuss this morning or cover this morning, but the one thing I want to highlight is that it is, that's such a gift is that the world benefits from God's preparation of his people. The fact that God is preparing people, he's preparing his people, is something that the world benefits from. Just a few verses earlier, from this point in Corinthians, this letter to Corinthians, we were in chapter 5, um, in chapter 4, Paul shares something. It's 2 Corinthians four thirteen through 18. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. It's all for your sake. So that the grace extends to more and more people. It may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. Imagine a world filled with grateful people. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction, whatever it is in this life is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The Holy Spirit is preparing His people for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's a weight. It is heavy. You can't bear it right now. You need the glorified body. You need to be prepared. It's a weight. It is a beautiful weight. It is a glorious weight, but it is a weight. And the reward is coming to those who walk with him, if you walk with him. And because of this, the entire world benefits from people who reflect their creator. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17, a little bit earlier in the letter. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us, through those who suffer, through those who praise Him, through those who walk with Him, despite being killed, despite being bombed, despite being beheaded, all those who walk with Him, they spread the fragrance and the knowledge of Him everywhere. Everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death and to other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of the word of God, but men of sincerity. 
as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. The world needs, we need, I need to be more often in the presence of people who are marked by the presence of God. Men and women who by their witness in life teach me more about my God and my Savior. The world has enough peddlers. They have enough thieves. They have enough <clears throat> of violence. They have enough greed. They have enough yes men. They have enough hypocrites. The world needs people who have known and continue to know the presence of God through Christ and His resurrection. And if that wasn't enough, God's preparation for His people is what fuels His patience. It fuels His patience on the wicked world. It fuels His patience. The fact that He's preparing a people keeps His hand back. You think God doesn't notice the evil? You think God doesn't notice the 140 people dead this morning in Sri Lanka? You think God doesn't see any of that? You don't think God sees the two churches that were bombed? He sees it all. You ever wonder why God just puts up with it? The death, the murder, the crime, the sin, the rebellion? He does because there is a greater joy. His people and his son. God looks out into history and he says, not yet. All my people have not yet been collected. They're not all here yet. They're not all in the fold. They're still out there. I need to get them before I bring judgment. And I pray that's all of you here this morning. Romans 9, 22-23. What if God... It's like a rhetorical question that Paul likes to ask. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience? He is patient. The vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known to us, to the world, the riches of His glory for the vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. God endures evil so it serves as a beacon of grace to all His children, those that are currently His children and those that will be. I'm waiting. Come to me. Come to me. I'm being patient. You're important. I'm waiting for you. But He's also storing up a godly wrath to spill out on all those in fury of those who reject him. And therefore, we must all repent. We must all repent and get right with him through Christ or perish. Which leads to our third gift of the resurrection. And it is because it provides a way, it makes way for the divine judgment of Christ. The divine judgment of Christ. From verse 10 in our passage this morning. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. Now it may seem odd that a gift of the resurrection is the appointment of Christ as a final judge over all creation. But we need to realize something beautiful about our judge. God saw it pleasing, good, fitting, wise, just, that the one who should reign over human beings and all of their pain and all of their sin should be one of them before he takes his role as judge over them. It was good that he first suffer and die and offer redemption before he takes his place as judge. 
The one that rules should also redeem. So this wonderful gift is that the one who will judge all people of all nations, of all time, is not only the one who has the authority to condemn them, but also has the one, the authority to save them. In the end, it won't be how many sins you've committed, ultimately, or how bad you were, or how big or little of a mess you made, or did you do any good, or did you bother other people, or make their lives, you know, difficult? No, in the end, the question was, did you or did you not submit to the authority of Jesus Christ? Who is Christ to you? If there is any other answer besides Lord, then that's it. God says, I raised him from the dead. That wasn't enough to show my approval on him. I send my own people to die to bring the message of hope of me. Suffering is brought so that they may showcase to this dying world how great a treasure my son, Jesus Christ, is. He's better than comfort. He's better than food. He's better than physical intimacy. He's better than money. He's better than life itself because true life is in him. Acts 17, 29-31. This is part of Paul's sermon to the scholars at Mars Hill. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance. He has given his seal of approval to all people, to all, by raising him from the dead. And therefore the beauty of God's gift in making the in resurrecting Christ and making the resurrected Christ our judge is that he provides for us a just judge and he also provides for us a restoring judge. 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 through 12. This is um, the New Living Translation for clarity. Dear brothers and sisters, we can't help but thank God for you because your faith is flourishing and your love for one another is growing. We proudly tell God's other churches about your endurance and your faithfulness and all the persecutions and hardships you are suffering. And God will use this persecution to show his justice and to make you worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. In his justice, he will pay back to those who persecute you. <clears throat> and God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted. And also for us, when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven, <clears throat> he will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who do not know God and those who refuse to obey the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and his glorious power. When that day comes, or when he comes on that day, he will receive glory from his holy people, praise from all who those who believe, this includes you, for you believe what you were told about him. So we keep on praying for you, asking God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honored because of the way you live. And you will be honored among them 
This is all made possible because of the grace of our God and Lord, Jesus Christ. Lastly, our final gift will also be our application this morning. So in asking ourselves, why else is the resurrection of Jesus Christ the greatest gift for all creation, and what it means for everyone here this morning, is the divine call of his people. The divine call of his people. Verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The word therefore is an adverb which signifies the results of what came before it, right? So Paul is saying everything he said, everything we've talked about this morning as of right now, it's because of, it's therefore, because we have come to know the fear of the Lord, what's the result? That we persuade others. What does that mean for us? What is God's call on his people and all people in repentance? Well, first, it's to live abundantly in Christ. Live abundantly in Christ. John 10.10. This is Jesus speaking again. A thief comes to only steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 8.34-36. Jesus answered them. This is the disciples. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Like our worship song this morning. Let us be challenged by what it means to actually live. Jesus never owned a home. He never was married. He never knew a woman intimately. He never had an impressive job title. He never owned a wealth of possessions. And yet he was more human than all of us. He was the most human man who has ever been. The resurrection of Jesus shows us what we were designed and intended for, knowing and savoring God. Matthew 6, 25-33, again, Jesus speaking. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, or what you eat, or what you drink, or not, nor about your body, or what you put on. Is life not more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour of, to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, which is... Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after those things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Live an abundant life in Christ. That's our calling. Our second one is to die expectantly. To die expectantly. Look at death with an excited feeling that something good is about to happen. God wants us to see death as a conquered foe. Verses 6 through 9 of our passage this morning in 2 Corinthians 5. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. 
For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We are either away from the Lord, which is right now. We're in our bodies. We're away from the Lord. Or we're at home with them in death. But we would rather be away. This is what Paul is talking about. We would rather be at home, away from the body and at home with the Lord. That doesn't mean seek death. It doesn't mean go on a suicide mission. Because what does he say? We were, whether we're at home or away, it's the same. We make it our aim to please him. We live for him. We live for Christ. And for, Paul uses this phrase, home. Why does he use home? Because... It's where we're completely ourselves. We take our shoes off. We get into something comfortable. We let loose. We, it's where people find the most us, right, when we're relaxed in our homes. So when Paul says, at home with the Lord, friends, that's where we will be most us. We will almost be ourselves, not here, where sin keeps us back. Let us see death the way that Jesus did. Glorious! True pleasure is to come with him. C.S. Lewis said on this theme, he said this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, right, everything we're talking about, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Let us raise the bar of what pleases us. Let us not settle, but seek the best only. And the best is so good that death was unable to hold him. Let us find our highest pleasures in Jesus Christ. He is waiting for you, for us all. Let us come to him. And let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning. We thank you for bringing the Lord Jesus out of the grave and bringing him through resurrection to this world, to this, to this dying world that we need. Father, the message of the resurrection is one that touches every aspect of our lives. It touches every point in every facet, in every time period, in every culture, in every, every country. It is the hope of dying man, Father. And I pray this morning that you carry your message of the resurrection to us all, that we may keep it in our hearts and keep it in our minds, and that you may speak to all those present here, and that we may carry the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ within us all the days of our life. Until, we come, until you come again and we meet with you face to face. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.